always difficult to break up the passing of the peace because it is such a beautiful sight. I've told you that before and it truly is. But the Word of God is important too and we are going to spend some time in it this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at John chapter 18 specifically this morning. We're going to be looking into Gethsemane. What happened in Gethsemane? Gethsemane was a garden. It was a grove of olive trees. And Gethsemane means oil press. And it's literally the pressing of the olives that would create the oil. And this was a place that Jesus often went to. And so as we look into this, I just want to uh, suggest to you that as we're teaching as I'm teaching this this morning, and as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I want you to expand your view beyond just the words on the page. Because so often as we go through the Bible, particularly the Gospels, and we look at the life of Jesus, it's very easy for us to just say, well, that's something that happened 2,000 years ago. I've read this so many times. And it becomes somewhat rote. And we don't really experience some of the emotion and some of the reality of what was going on for Jesus. And this is one of those moments that I really want you to step into the pages, the words on the page, and begin to experience some of what Jesus was going through. And I think you will find that some of you are either going through your own Gethsemane, or you will go through a Gethsemane. We'll talk about that a little bit. And this morning can prepare you for that. Heavenly Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us here this morning as we open up your word and look into it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the beginning of the the passion of Jesus Christ, the public drama of redemption. Up to this point, Jesus has had a very public ministry, but in the last several chapters of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been in an upper room just with his disciples. And actually, for a good portion of the time, only 11 of his disciples. Judas has left and gone to the high priest and has been preparing to betray Jesus to the Romans. So Jesus now is beginning the public portion of his passion, the drama of redemption that will lead ultimately to Calvary and then three days later, a resurrection from the dead. And again, as I mentioned, this is all very familiar to us. We're getting ready to enter into the Easter season. And sometimes I think because we have lived this so many times, uh, again, we take it for granted. But perhaps this will be a different kind of Easter season for you. I want to suggest something to you. Which holiday do you put more emphasis into? Christmas or Easter? Certainly from a societal perspective, we put way more emphasis on Christmas, don't we? A lot of energy goes into preparing for, planning for Christmas Day mostly the month of December. And if you're in retail, it's probably the month of November as well. Easter sort of seems to slip up on us, doesn't it? Before you know it, it's Easter. And the next thing you know, it's gone. We don't really contemplate what Easter is all about. This is the beginning of that. 
We're going to read through the first 14 verses here, and then, then I'll, I'll give some commentary on it. When he had finished praying, this was the, the high priestly prayer that probably occurred up on the Temple Mount somewhere. Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, they would have gone out off of the Temple Mount through the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. And that's the picture that so often we see taken uh, that has on, on the Temple Mount now the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And the, the Eastern Gate or the, the Golden Gate is blocked up but it would have been open at the time of Jesus. They would have come off the Temple Mount through the Eastern Gate down into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is that, that gorge down there coming off of the Temple Mount going up onto the Mount of Olives. And Kidron means dark or dusky. And at this particular time, Passover, it would have been particularly dark or dusky because all of the sacrifices from the Temple Mount all of the blood that was shed would flow down from the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley. So literally, the Kidron is flowing with blood at this time. Josephus tells us that at a typical Passover, somewhere in the vicinity of 260,000 sheep were sacrificed. So you can imagine the volume of blood that is coming off of the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley. And as Jesus comes off of the Temple Mount himself, passing through the Kidron Valley and then up onto the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was, I wonder what he was thinking as he passed through the Kidron, as he saw the blood flowing. He was the Lamb of God. He knew what lay ahead for him. I wonder if he looked back to the past when King David passed through the Kidron Valley. Because King David did when he was betrayed by Absalom, his son, and Ahithophel, his advisor. David had to flee Jerusalem, and he crossed over the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, in flight from Absalom. I wonder if Jesus, knowing he was going to be betrayed, was reminded of David's flight. I wonder if Jesus looked forward to what the book of Revelation talks about in a, a yet future time. In Revelation chapter 14, it talks about the blood flowing through the Kidron Valley up to the horse's bridle after the wrath of God has been poured out. And of course, Jesus, as he's crossing the Kidron Valley and heading up towards the Garden of Gethsemane, it does not escape his attention that he is heading towards that very thing. He is going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. Read through Revelation 14. It's an extraordinary chapter. It's talking about the, the full measure of God's wrath being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And as Jesus crosses the Kidron and he's heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane, he's looking back and he's looking forward as he sees the blood flowing. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons, a grouping probably somewhere in the vicinity of a couple of hundred. Now, a detachment or a cohort of soldiers could have numbered up to 600. There probably weren't 600, but they probably had access to 600 if something would have happened. They were prepared for the possibility of a riot when they arrested Jesus. So they were prepared with a cohort or a detachment of soldiers. But regardless, there's a large group of soldiers, officials, that are being led by Judas into the garden at Gethsemane. And they are going to arrest Jesus. Now, John, throughout his gospel, focuses us upon the deity of Jesus Christ. Each gospel portrays Jesus, paints him in a little bit of a different light. John portrays Jesus as the Son of God. And here we see that deity coming out. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? He was not afraid. He did not flee. He did not look for an avenue out at this point. He sees the group coming to him. He goes out to meet them and asks them, who is it that they are looking for? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, again, recall, we're talking about a couple of hundred people at least here. Now, what I want you to, to notice, in your Bibles, you will see that, that phrase, I am he, the he in your Bibles is in italics. So what that means is that's not a part of the original text. Literally, what Jesus said here in response to who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, when Jesus responded, he responded, ego in me. Ego in me. And that means I am. And when he responded, I am, using the name of God, that self-existent personality, when he responded, that is who I am, this group of people fell back to the ground. Again, demonstrating the fact that Jesus is in absolute control of this situation. This is not happening to him. It is happening by the will of God, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So Jesus is in total control. Again, he asked them, verse 7, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth. This time, I suspect, they responded a little bit more meekly. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one that you gave me. So again, Jesus is protecting his disciples here. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, you'll remember from Luke chapter 22, Jesus had talked to them about the changing dynamics of him going to the Father and them going into the world. And the disciples said, here, Lord, we have a couple of swords. And he said, that's enough. And so Peter is carrying a sword with him. And he drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, in one of the other Gospels, it says that they asked Jesus, Lord, should we strike with the sword at this point? So they asked Jesus, 
Are we to strike with the sword? Is this a situation in which it is proper for us to take the sword, Lord, and respond? But before they get Jesus' approval, Simon Peter steps forward with the sword and strikes the high priest's servant, Malchus. Now, this is the wrong weapon at the wrong time used in the wrong way. We can look at Peter's boldness, even his bravery, perhaps, but what we need to pay attention to here is the fact that he had acted outside of the will of and the direction of God. I mean, in a, in a human sense, what Peter is doing here is, is pretty extraordinary. There's this large group of soldiers, and Peter, bold Peter, takes the sword out and strikes. But if you... I don't care how brave your actions may seem, how assertive your response may appear. If it's outside of God's will, it's wrong. And that was wrong here. In fact, Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? And so Jesus ends up healing Malchus's ear. Had he not done that, and had Jesus not been in absolute control of this situation, Peter probably would have been crucified as well. So Jesus is protecting Peter in his disobedience. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that. They bound him. And brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So a lot of times, and I think appropriately so, people look at the Garden of Gethsemane and what happened there and compare it to what happened in the Garden of Eden. And we're going to do that for just a moment. In the Garden of Eden, what happened? Man, Adam, disobeyed God and rebelled against him. And as a result, Adam ended up hiding from God. When God came into the garden, he said, Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? And ultimately, that sin and rebellion led to them being cast out of the garden and an angel unsheathing a sword and protecting the entrance to the garden, keeping man out of it. By contrast, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus obeys the Father. He submits to the will of God. And as a result, rather than hiding from God, Jesus is transparent before God. God, if there is any way that this cup may pass from me. May it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus three times came to the Father with that prayer. So Jesus wasn't hiding from the Father. Jesus was transparent and present there with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, who took the sword out, was told, put the sword away. Because the way back into the Garden is being opened up here by Jesus, and by the work he is doing. So let's talk about that for just a moment. What was Jesus facing here as he came into the garden? 
What confronted Jesus here in the garden? Well, first, a deep, deep sorrow. It says in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 26, that Jesus told his disciples, my heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. Now, this is the Son of God speaking. And he is saying that his heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. Have you ever been there where your heart is overwhelmed with sorrow? Something has happened in your life. You've had a loss. You're facing some kind of situation where you know you are going to be severed from or separated from someone you love, and your heart is just overwhelmed. That's what Jesus was going through. His heart was overwhelmed. The other thing that Jesus was facing that he spoke about there in in verse 11 was the cup of the Father. Now, you must understand what the cup of the Father means. The cup is speaking of the full measure of the wrath of God toward sin, poured out. Now, (laughs) when you're a kid and you've done something wrong, and we were all kids once, and some of you still are kids, although you're almost adults, and you've done something wrong, you've been caught, you know that you're going to be punished. And there's a period of time between the, the decree of guilt and the punishment. And you're waiting in your bedroom knowing something's going to happen. Has anybody ever experienced that? Okay, sure you have. The intensity of the dread sometimes is worse than the actual punishment itself. In this case, it's not true. The punishment itself was far worse than what Jesus was going through here. And yet, this is what Jesus was facing. His heart was overwhelmed with sorrow. He was facing the cup of the wrath of God that would be poured out upon him. He knew that when he went to the cross, he knew that he would cry out unto the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God's punishment upon sin would be falling upon him. He would be, for the first time in an eternity, in some fashion that we cannot as human beings grasp or understand, be separated from the Father. Because he became sin. Just as the song this morning, he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. That's what Jesus knew was facing him. And that's what he was dealing with here in the garden. So what did he do? What did Jesus do in order to deal with what he was facing? Well, first, it says in the Gospel of Matthew that he's, as he left Peter, James, and John, there were the 11 disciples with him. Peter, James, and John came closer with him to where he was going to pray. But then he went a little bit farther. And Matthew says that Jesus prostrated himself with his face to the ground and began to pray. That's what he did. He physically postured himself in a position of submission to God the Father. 
as he prepared to pray. I think that is very important, and I want to draw it out because, again, I, I say to you that you have to go through your own Gethsemane. The only way to Calvary is through Gethsemane. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for us. The only way there is through Gethsemane. And when you are entering into Gethsemane, when you are burdened, when your heart is overwhelmed with sorrow, when a circumstance is occurring in your life that you seemingly have no control over, and you are coming before the heavenly throne of grace, I believe it is appropriate and probably even necessary that you physically posture yourself in a position of submission unto God, saying to him, whatever your will is, Father, let it be done in my life. You know, a lot of times Jesus prayed while he was standing. Other times it says he prayed while he knelt. Many times Jesus prayed as he walked. But this was different. This was a time where in the most grave and difficult of circumstances, he knew he was going to have to submit himself unto the will of God, terrifying though it was. And as he did that, he postured himself in a position of submission. So I just wanted to suggest to you, as you are entering into Gethsemane, that you keep that in mind. Secondly, he prayed powerfully. And when I'm talking about praying powerfully, I'm not just praying or talking about him praying in submission to God's will, although that certainly was occurring. He did that three times. I'm talking about a physical dimension to prayer that Jesus engaged in here. He prayed powerfully. Luke's gospel says that he was praying so intensely that his sweat became as drops of blood. That's a medical condition known as hematidrosis. 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 R after the D. Some of you who are medical professionals may have heard of that. It's not an unusual condition. Actually, it's been well documented to be fairly typical of people who have been condemned to death. And that is what Jesus is doing. He is praying so hard that his sweat is becoming as drops of blood. The capillaries literally are bursting as he prays to his Father. This is no sanitized prayer. This is deep, physical manifestation of submission unto the will of God. I have prayed passionately at times in my life, times where I have wept in prayer, times where I have been physically tensed in prayer. Perhaps you have as well. But I've never sweat blood. So Jesus postured himself in submission. He prayed powerfully as he addressed what he was facing, the wrath of God and the sorrow that overwhelmed him. So what did this accomplish? Two things, at least two things. First, through that time of prayer, Jesus committed 
himself to Calvary. He had not yet gone through the scourging. He had not yet had the nails hammered into his wrists and to his legs. He had not yet had the spear thrust into his side or the crown of thorns placed upon his head. His back had not been opened with the cat of nine tails. But at this point, and the quote I put in your bulletin, I think says it well, at this point, Jesus was committed to Calvary because of his prayer. It hadn't happened yet, but Jesus died in Gethsemane. Jesus died in Gethsemane. Prayer was the key. Powerful, physical prayer was the key to getting him from Gethsemane to the cross. Sometimes that is going to happen in our lives. Three times the Apostle Paul prayed to have a thorn in the flesh removed from him. Paul had been caught up into the third heaven, had seen things and heard things that were unlawful for him to repeat. He could not tell other people what he had seen and experienced. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul said that a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet him, a thorn in the flesh. And three times the Apostle Paul prays, much like Jesus prayed three times. Three times, Father, remove this thorn in the flesh from me. And three times, just as Jesus prayed and submitted himself to the will of God, three times Paul prayed and God said no. What do you do? What do you do when God says no? You know, we talk about the power of prayer and the importance of prayer, and it's absolutely true. But what do we do when God does not answer yes? When he answers no, I've got something different for you. In Paul's case, and actually I, I believe this is true in Jesus' case too. In Paul's case, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my power is perfected in weakness. Jesus went to the cross fully knowing what was going to happen to him, but he went there in the power of God, which was weakness. He submitted himself to the will of God and thus was hanging on a cross in weakness, becoming sin for us. Likewise, Paul, I want to read this. It's out of First. Uh, Cor- or excuse me, 2 Corinthians, Paul submitted in his ministry to weakness. We, we oftentimes think about this sense of power and, and boldness and being in control of things, and the reality is most Christian ministry is exactly the opposite of that. Listen to what Paul says. Paul, the most effective probably of all Christian ministers, says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, such that we despaired of life life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. That sounds like a man who has learned power perfected in weakness. A, a man who has determined that his mission in life is to submit himself to the will of God and understands that when you've prayed three times and God has said no three times to you, that God's will is better for you than what you are praying for. What would have happened if God had answered Jesus' prayer? If there's any other way, Lord, let this cup pass from me. We'd be sitting here this morning fully in our sin, unforgiven, with no hope of salvation. There was something better. Three things I want you to think about when God says no to you. Three things. First, when God says no, understand that his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He has all of the information that is needed to procure the right outcome. We have very limited field of vision, church. We think we know what is good for us, but so often it is not true. We don't really understand the full dimension of what is going on in us and around us. So God ways, God's ways are higher than ours. Second, when God says no, understand that God's view is towards eternity. James said, this life is just like a vapor. And some of you, who along with me are getting older, can understand that. You think to yourself, whoa, wasn't I, wasn't I just in middle school? How, how is it that I'm 56 years old? You know? But God is looking for something so far beyond this life for us. Paul writes in Roman, Romans 8.18, says, The sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be, shall be revealed in us. God views eternity. He's not just trying to pull you out of the situation. There are times he wants you in the situation, going through it, because he's working out an eternal weight of glory through that situation. So when God says no sometimes, it's because he's looking towards eternity. And finally, when God says no, I want you to remember that his power is perfected in weakness. And what is his power? What is the power of God? And we'll conclude with this. What is the power of God? I'm opening it up. Anybody have an idea? What is the power of God? What was binding Jesus as he was being led to the high priest and to the Romans and to a death on a hill called Calvary? Was it iron chains? It was love. The power that is perfected in weakness is love. Now you're going to have to think about that and meditate upon that for a while because that 
is easy to say. It's much more difficult to understand. The power that is perfected in weakness is love. When God says no to you, he is many times working into you love. When Jesus was going to the cross, it was love that drove him there. When Paul was ministering among savage beasts in Ephesus, it was love that kept him going. John Cattles, in our Friday morning coffee discussion, uh, brought out a point that I want to conclude with because I think I think it is absolutely essential for us to understand as we submit ourselves to the will of God. As you go through your Gethsemane, whenever that might be, it might be right now, it might be next week, it might be next year, I don't know. But as you submit yourself to the will of God, as you posture yourself in submission, as you pray powerfully, I want you to Remember this phrase, perfect submission comes from perfect love. Perfect submission comes from perfect love. Heavenly Father, this is heavy stuff, but we're not sweating blood here this morning. But your spirit needs to speak to us, Lord, to just... Take this in. And as Steve said at the call to worship, to take this in and to take it out into our lives. How are we loving the unlovable around us? How are we dealing with those situations in our lives, Father, that are overwhelming us? How are we dealing with it when you say no to us? Because you have something better for us. Holy Spirit, work into us this message on Gethsemane. And I pray for each and every soul here this morning, Father, who is going through a Gethsemane on their way to Calvary or who will go through one. I pray that these words resonate with them. Perfect submission comes from perfect love. And that our love for you would only grow by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to conclude with the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, appropriate, I believe, uh, given the message today. It's hymn 172. It'll also be projected. Let's all stand together.